We'll read from John chapter 12, starting at verse 20 to the end of the chapter. It comes under the heading, Jesus predicts his death. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Peter. Sorry. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this reason, or this very reason, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to them. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may be become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left them and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their ears, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. 
for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to the, uh, to the world, but to save, sorry, to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I do not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. And we thank the Lord for that. Well, let's just bow in prayer, shall we? Uh, Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would uh, grant us spiritual insight and understanding as we come to consider this important chapter from uh, John's Gospel. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Jesus said that if you love your life, you'll lose it. And if you hate your life, you'll gain it. How about that, eh? Uh, it, it sounds like someone made a typing mistake or something in the Bible, doesn't it? Because, uh, you know, wouldn't it sound better if it said that if you love your life, you'll keep it, and if you hate your life, uh, you'll lose it? Wouldn't that make more sense? I mean, if you love your life, then you're going to look after yourself, you're going to exercise your body, you're going to uh, eat healthy foods, you're not going to do stupid, risky things, and you're more likely to live longer, aren't you? You're more likely to actually keep your life uh, if you love it. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says if you love your life, uh, you'll lose it. And if you hate your life, uh, you'll keep it. In fact, it's something which Jesus says, I counted up at least five times uh, in the Gospels, uh, in different situations. Jesus said that five times. Uh, in fact, on one occasion, he said something even more radical than that. Uh, listen to what he said in Luke chapter 14. He said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what do you make of that? Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. But I also happen to love my mum. And not just because she's here. <laughs> and I love my wife. Where's Cassie? And I love Alyssa and Andrew. Uh, I even love my brother and sister. And I'm kind of keen on keeping my life as well. But Jesus says, no, if you... If you don't hate these things, these people, then you can't be my disciple. Um, that's a pretty cool, pretty radical thing to say. And uh, in our passage today, he says, if you love your life, you'll lose it. 
Uh, if you hate your life, you'll keep it. That's in uh, John 12. Can we open up our Bibles at John 12, by the way? Um, and we're going to be looking at the second half of the chapter. Last week we looked at the first half of John 12. Do you remember much about the first half of John 12? I asked Peter about this. He preached on it last week and he couldn't remember much about it. And uh, to be perfectly honest, you know, I, look, you know, I'm the one who preaches most of the time and if you ask me what I preached the week before, I've usually forgotten you know, a week later. So I understand. Let me uh, refresh your memories. In the first part of John 12, uh, John painted for us a magnificent, glorious picture. Uh, remember Jerusalem? It was at the time of the Passover. Jerusalem was chock-a-block full of uh, tens of thousands of people and Jesus was entering into Jerusalem and he entered on the back of a donkey. And we're told that a great crowd of people gathered around Jesus and they basically worshipped him. Uh, They had palm branches and they used their palm branches uh, to, uh, to worship him. They praised him. They cried out to him, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. You know, blessed is he who can't... This was a magnificent scene. It was a triumphal scene. It was a great scene. It was a fantastic moment. And you might think that this is the high point uh, of Jesus' life. But not according to Jesus. Because after that happened, immediately we get to verse 20 of chapter 12 and the whole pace of the narrative slows down for us. Let me read verses 20 to 22. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. So, there we have this great, magnificent, the NIV calls it the triumphal entry of Jesus, but suddenly the whole story focuses on a few Greeks, um, non-Jews, Gentiles, who came and they wanted to see Jesus. Uh, Can you remember another time in Jesus' life when some Gentiles came wanting to see Jesus that was really important? That happened at the time of his birth. Now is the time for his death. Uh, Throughout John's Gospel, we keep on hearing about a time which would be Jesus' hour or Jesus' time. Um, We first heard that in John chapter 2 when uh, he was, remember he was at the wedding in Cana in, in Galilee, they ran out of wine and his mother said, hey son, do something about it. And he said, why do you involve me woman? My hour has not yet come. Then he proceeded to turn water into wine. Uh, throughout the gospel, as the opposition to Jesus has increased, Every time the the Jews wanted to seize him or arrest him or stone him, he always managed to slip away. And John will tell us because his 
hour had not yet come. Now, some people might think, well, the great triumphal hour is this entry into Jerusalem with people actually worshipping him. But no, it is actually at the arrival of these Gentiles, these Greeks, that Jesus says in verse 24 that upon their arrival that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Do you see that in verse 23? Now, do you ever watch the Gruen transfer on TV? Come on, put up your hand if you're an ABC fanatic and you watch Gruen transfer. All right, for those of you who haven't seen the light, uh, Gruen transfer, it's an uh, interesting show where they have a panel of advertising experts and they analyse, they evaluate and they explain um, certain television um, advertisements and campaigns to show you why it's effective or why it's not effective, what it's trying to communicate, what it's trying to do, all that sort of thing. It's a pretty interesting show. You learn a bit about communication by watching it. Um, this last week, they did anyone see it the other night? They focused on church advertisements on television, uh, such as the Jesus All About Life campaign and, uh, and others like that. Uh, if you want to watch it, it's on iView on the internet. They'll have a copy of it available for you to watch. It's a helpful thing to watch, actually. But what I found was interesting is that they showed these ads uh, which the church has put out, and all except one of them was about how you can improve your life now, uh, how you can live a truly great, happy and satisfying life now. Um, I'll have to watch it again, but from my recollection, I don't remember any of them actually saying anything about Jesus uh, sacrificing his life on the cross, which would seem to me that's actually our main message, isn't it? That's what we wanted people to hear about. Have a look in verse 24. In verse 24, uh, Jesus, having said that his hour to be glorified has now come, says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, I'm no farmer, but I think this is fairly self-explanatory. When a uh, kernel of wheat, where the head of the wheat dies, it drops to the ground, uh, it cracks open, the seed comes out, and the seed spreads, and because of the death of one kernel of wheat, you actually have new life uh, multiplied, you know, in, in plentiful, uh, in, in abundance. Uh, you have new life that comes about as a result of that. And that's often true in agriculture in other ways as well. So that the death of one leads to the life of many. And so it is with Jesus. He is applying this to himself. This is his hour of glory when he dies and brings life to many. Now, I want to talk about how the death of Jesus, the death of the one, brings life to many. I remember one Good Friday service uh, where there was a 
a young couple from Japan who turned up. They were a non-Christian couple and they came to the church service. They wanted to see what Good Friday was all about. And after the service they approached me, they were quite, I think, confused because they said, we came here because uh, you said it was Good Friday and all you've told us about is the death of Jesus. Why do you call it Good Friday? Why not Bad Friday or Terrible Friday? Why Good Friday? I thought that was a great question, actually, because it gets to the heart of what uh, Christianity is all about. Verse 31. Verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the time... It's the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. Now in this, Jesus is alluding to an event that happened in, uh, after the Exodus uh, when the people of Israel in the wilderness had rebelled against God, God was punishing them with snakes entering into their camp, poisonous snakes, and they were dying. And God, they pleaded to God to rescue them, and God said to Moses to make a, I think it was a brass snake, snake out of brass, put it on a pole, lift it up, and then anyone who would look to that pole would be healed. And that actually points us to Jesus because Jesus would be lifted up on a pole and anyone who turns to him would actually be forgiven of their sin. We're told here that the prince of this world would be driven out. Who is the prince of this world? It is Satan. Why is Satan referred to as the prince? What is it about Princes, that means that we'd call Satan a prince. I take it that a prince has power. A prince has authority. A prince has people who serve him. Well, Satan had power. Power over you and me. That was his power. Satan's power was the guilt of our sin. You see, Satan is the great deceiver. Satan says that if you, uh, if you want to have a truly satisfying, rewarding, fulfilling life, then forget about God and follow the desires of your own heart. That's what he says. That's what he said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He's a deceiver because he knows that when we turn our back on God that we incur the wrath of God, the punishment of God, that we're cut off from a relationship with God forever. And that's his trick. That's the power that he held over us, the guilt of our sin. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, what did he do to Satan's power? He took it away because he paid the debt that we owed to God. So Satan's got nothing hanging over us now and God can forgive our sin and we can receive eternal life. 
Now, Jesus, therefore, is that kernel of wheat. He died so that many people, people like you and me, can now have life, eternal life. But in verse 34, the crowd was still confused. They had hoped that Jesus would be like an earthly saviour, that he would save them from who they saw as their enemy. Who did they see as their enemy, by the way? They saw it was the the Romans. Thank you very much. Who answered that question? That was really well done. Yep, one of the kids did. Yeah, Lachlan. G'day, Lachlan. (laughs) They thought the Romans were their enemy and that Jesus would save them from the Romans. But the arrival of these Greeks tells a very different story because Jesus would not just save the Jews, he would save the Gentiles as well. He would save the world. Not from the Romans, but from the real enemy, from Satan, the prince of this world. Now, um, today I want us to finish off this current series on uh, the book of John because this really is the end of a section in John. Uh, the next section actually opens up with the, uh, the scene at the upper room and what's called the final discourses. And we're going to come back to that uh, later, later this year, probably early next year. But I want you to think about what we've seen so far in John's Gospel. Um, what, about, what is it about John's Gospel that has stood out for you? Uh, if you could think of one or two of the key truths that we've learned, um, what would you think those key truths would be? Just have a think about that. I'll tell you my thoughts. Firstly, we've learnt about the claims that Jesus made about himself. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the light of life. I am the resurrection and the life. We've learnt what he claimed. But more than that, we've seen the evidence that what he claimed about himself is actually true. And the evidence is in the miracles. Think about the miracles that we've looked at over these past couple of months as we've been looking at John's Gospel. Uh, He turned water into wine at the wedding. Uh, remember there was a boy who was dying and he was, his father was an official and he went to, to Jesus and he said, please heal my, my, my boy. And Jesus said, go home, your, your boy's healed. Remember that? He healed that boy. Uh, he healed a man who'd been crippled for I think over three decades. Uh, remember the guy that was at the pool? Could never get into the pool because everyone else rushed in before him? That man was healed. He could walk. Uh, He fed thousands of people with just a a few fish and about five loaves of bread. Um, Incredible. He walked on water. Uh, He healed the man who was born blind. And the other week we saw that he took a a bloke who'd been dead for four days, all wrapped up, stuck in a tomb, and he commanded him to come back to life. And his mate Lazarus walked out of the tomb. Now, these have been incredible miracles, public miracles. 
But yet in verse 34, the people are still asking questions. They're still saying, hang on, you know, what are you talking about that you're going to be lifted up? We thought the Christ would stay around with us, etc., etc. Now Jesus has been through all of that. And in verse 36, basically, he's saying that the time for excuses, the time for avoiding the obvious, is over. It's now decision time. And so have a look at how he answers them in verse 36. He challenges them and he says, it's time now to put your trust in the light while you still have it, so that you might become sons of the light. And then he splits the scene. He leaves them. He doesn't come back. But it's not only Jesus that's split. The crowd is now split as well. Which is often what we've seen in John's Gospel, isn't it? Uh, Two different responses to Jesus. Uh, Let me outline those responses. Firstly, if you have a look at verses 37 through to 41, uh, we're told that these people had seen the great miracles, but they simply refused to believe what Jesus said about himself. Now, this was no great surprise to God, by the way. It's not as if God's plan had somehow been foiled by this. In fact, it fits right into the plan of God because the rejection of Jesus was prophesied 800 years earlier uh, in Isaiah, uh, in Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, You know that great chapter that uh, foretells the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection? Um, John, John reminds his readers of how Isaiah 53 begins. He quotes it in verse 38. Let me read verse 37 just to put in context. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfil the words of Isaiah the prophet when he said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, in that quote, we see, in, we see embedded into that quote two very important points. Firstly, uh, it is our human responsibility to believe the message. But secondly, because we are spiritually blind in our natural state, We can only believe if the arm of the Lord reveals it to us. Do you see that? Now, they did not believe, and they are culpable for that, but they did not believe, and here's the interesting point, because they could not believe, because God had not opened their eyes. Um, John explains this by quoting again from Isaiah, This time from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 39. For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. 
So what do you make of that? Um, the context of Isaiah is important, actually, because Isaiah chapter 6 deals with the sin of God's people in Judah, the Jews, uh, 800 years before Christ. Now, at this point uh, in Isaiah and in Israel's, in, in the Jewish history, their sin was so stubborn that God had, uh, God had warned them repeatedly, time and time again, but they had continued to uh, reject God's warning. And so God, by the time you get to Isaiah 6, had now made the decision to punish his people, uh, to take them into exile. Now, the punishment of God of his people uh, is actually for their benefit. Um, it is a right thing, it is a good thing. God disciplines his people because he loves his people and this judgment upon the Jews would be for their benefit. Because of that, until the punishment had taken place, God did not allow them to turn back to him. And we know that because in the next verse in Isaiah 6, Isaiah says to the Lord, he says, how long? How long will this blindness, this deafness, how long will, this, how long will you allow this to continue? And God's answer is that I will allow this to continue until the judgment is complete. And then there will be a remnant. Then I will restore my people and bring them home. But if they repented before the judgment, the judgment would not take place. And in this instance, God had determined that this judgment would take place. Time was up. Now, in, chapter, in verse 41 of John 12, John tells us that Isaiah was actually speaking about Jesus. Certainly in its original context, it's talking about the Jews going into exile. But, uh, uh, but, but Isaiah, um, we're, off, we're told this in the New Testament, that sometimes the, the prophets spoke of things that they themselves didn't even understand. But we can understand because we know about Jesus. John tells us that Isaiah was actually speaking about Jesus. And that is, it was necessary for some to reject Jesus. Because if they did not, then Jesus would not have been nailed to a cross. The judgment which he suffered on our behalf would never have taken place. We would not be forgiven. Satan would always be the prince of this world. And so it was essential. Now, of course, these people were still culpable for their sin. It was just that God allowed them to continue in their sin until the judgment on Jesus had taken place. Now, the second response to Jesus is in verses 42 to 50. I'm going to focus on verses 42 to 43. Let's have a look at those. Yet at the same time, many among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear 
that they would be put out of the synagogue. And why? For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Now, these were the people who did believe what Jesus was saying about himself, but they kept their mouths shut. Uh, They wouldn't tell anybody about what they believed about Jesus. Uh, The reason for that was because the Pharisees had threatened punishment on anyone who did believe that Jesus was the Christ. That punishment was that they would be put out of the synagogue. They would be excommunicated from their people. Now, this was a serious threat. Uh, Do you remember the man that was born blind? Remember when the Pharisees interviewed his parents and said, you know, tell us, what happened? Who was it who healed this, you know, this son of yours? Uh, were they prepared to tell the Pharisees that it was Jesus who had healed their son? They weren't, were they? Why not? Because they knew that they would be kicked out of the synagogue if they declared their faith in Jesus. What happened to the actual man himself when he uh, you know, was quite blunt with the Pharisees and told them, that Jesus had healed him and that he knew where Jesus came from, that he came from heaven. What happened to him? They kicked him out of the synagogue, didn't they? So this was no idle threat. But it brings us to the pointy end of uh, this chapter and it brings us to a point of challenge to you and me. And the question is this, uh, is it okay to believe in Jesus and to not declare our belief in Jesus? Uh, Is it okay to believe in Jesus and not be prepared to be kicked out of the synagogue? Uh, Is it okay to believe in Jesus and not be prepared to suffer? Uh, Is it okay to believe in Jesus and not be prepared to pay any cost for that belief? This is the pointy end of the chapter. And it's something which you and I need to consider because from time to time uh, this is an issue which, uh, which we may face because we uh, live in a non-Christian world. We live, we work, we play, we connect with people uh, on a daily basis who do not believe the same things about Jesus that we believe. What's it like for you um, in your place of work, uh, in your office, uh, your school, your hospital, uh, your, uh, you know, your work shed. Uh, what is it like for you? Uh, or some of you may live in retirement. Anyone here live in a retirement village? They're little communities. They're interesting communities. Um, one of our church members told me just the other day about how difficult it is for her living as a Christian in a retirement village. Uh, she said that uh, you know when there, there are some of the other residents and even the staff when they find out that she's a Christian that they treat her differently in a negative kind of way. Uh, what's it like in your club, your golf club, or in your sporting team, your soccer team, your cricket team, your footy team? Uh, what's it like for you, you know, when you go, you know, socialising with the, the guys after the game? when you're the only one who's a Christian? Or what about in your family, when you have 
family get-togethers and you, maybe your spouse, might be the only ones who are Christians. Sometimes, uh, with some people, it is quite frankly much easier for us just to zip it, isn't it? To keep our mouths shut, to not actually say who we are and what we believe. Now, of course, for many people, uh, Christians in our world, the stakes are much higher than they are for us. Uh, I know of people from Jewish backgrounds and Muslim backgrounds for whom the decision to become a Christian and to actually say so means being cut off from their families. There are some families who actually hold funerals for their kids, you know, when the kid has actually become a Christian. Not because the kid's been killed, but they no longer consider that kid to be alive because they're Christians. Uh, For some people, of course, it is actually worse than that. Um, In communist countries, such as North Korea, uh, China, and and I think um, Ben and Yi might be able to correct us on this, Vietnam, Uh, over the years. It's been incredibly difficult for people to be Christians. People have sometimes been uh, put in prison for being Christians. I've met people who've been in prison because they were Christians. Uh, And I I was watching a DVD that we've got at home on the history of the church in China over the 20th century. And I was particularly struck by this uh, interview with this this elderly man, he's elderly, he was elderly when the DVD was done, and he talked about the fact that when he was young, uh, he was put in prison because of the fact that he wouldn't stop telling people about Jesus. And I don't imagine that Chinese prisons back in the 1960s and 70s were much fun. I don't imagine they're much fun today. Uh, he was put in prison for over 20 years because he believed in Jesus. He was released from prison and when he went back to his family, there was a knock on the door from the government authorities. They turned up with a piece of paper and they said, well, now you've been released from prison. We want you to sign this piece of paper Uh, which actually recants some of your Christian faith. And this man thought, well, I can't sign it. And he decided not to sign it, knowing, you you know, the very next thing that they would do, put him back into prison, where he spent several more years, because he wanted to say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, and I want you to know about that, and I'm not going to compromise. Now, that's costly, isn't it? That's a bit more costly than just being ostracised by the friends at work, as difficult as that can be sometimes for us. Why makes take such a hard line? Well, it's because of verse 25. Have a look at verse 25. The man who loves his life will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me 
And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Friends, there are incredibly huge benefits in living the Christian life. Um, It is a healthier lifestyle. Christians tend to uh, not be addicted to as many uh, destructive addictions as non-Christians can be. We tend to have happier marriages. We tend to live longer. Those things are true. But it's not actually what it's all about. It's a secondary byproduct. Uh, the Christian life is about being committed to Jesus, no matter the cost. We are to commit our lives fully to Jesus because, you know what? He committed his life fully to us, even unto death on a cross. Um, Jesus uses radical language in describing what it means to be a disciple. Uh, You must hate your mother and your father and your brother and sister and your wife. He uses radical language like that uh, to tell us that in comparison to these things, our love must be much, much greater for Jesus. He uses radical language to teach us to put God first. If you love your life, you'll lose it. If you hate your life, you'll keep it. Uh, We must be prepared to make costly sacrifices for the sake of Jesus. We must be prepared to be clear to non-Christians about who we are and what we believe. We must be prepared to see the glory of God and the salvation of other people as being so important that we will give up our resources, uh, we will give up our time, we will give of our prayers, that we will indeed give our very lives for the sake of others, that we will die so that in the death of one kernel, Uh, the seed is spread and life comes to others. Friends, we've got to be prepared not to just simply play at being Christians, Uh, not to sit on the fence, not to be lukewarm or half-hearted, but to give everything to serving God, to be like that kernel of wheat that dies so that we can be fruitful. And more than that, uh, we're actually told that the person who lives that way is honoured by God. That's who we should be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he was obedient to you even unto death on a cross. We thank you that through his death that the prince of this world has been driven out and that uh, many men and women have been drawn to you. Father, we pray that we would not be people who are half-hearted. We pray that we would not be people who compromise. We pray that we wouldn't be people who've got one foot in the world and one foot in your kingdom, but uh, help us to be just like Jesus, uh, committed wholeheartedly to obeying you. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.